Uh, Exodus chapter 25 is where we are at today. Before I pray and we get started, let me give you some some background because I've preached way too long today, already twice. We're going to try to shorten it up and get all the good stuff in this morning for this service. But before we even get there, I, I have to make you aware, and I hope you have seen the latest uh, study that just came out of Harvard University. You guys know Harvard. Uh, it's an Ivy League school, famous school, started by a guy named John Harvard uh, to be a seminary to train pastors for ministry. If you can ever even remember a time that Harvard and ministry would be used in the same sentence. It's been a while. Uh, but a brand new study came out of Harvard, so everybody can agree with it. Right? Now, this is, this is actually a terrible study that they've done, but it's good for Christians because Christians have had their Bibles out going, we told you so for so long. But the study just came out where the statistics say that this current generation of 18 through 25-year-olds are the most miserable that age group has ever been. Now, the last time they did this study, and they try to do it one every generation, the last time they did this study was in uh, 22 years ago. That's how many of you in your 40, late 40s, right? I'm 47. That's our generation. They called our generation Generation X. Just for framework, right? We're the generation that came up with grunge music, just so you know. Dark Flannel, do, 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 right? Even before grunge, C, D, and G is all you needed to know to play a guitar to any song in the world. You had to learn E minor when grunge came out, okay? So 18 to 25, they're always, they're, they're I mean, they're, they're young. Nothing creaks, nothing squeaks, nothing's wrong. Vision dreams, marriage, you know, all, all the stuff that they're going to do with their lives, they're going to change the world. That's the, top, that's the age group for all that wonderful, beautiful naivete and, and uh, we're going to make a difference. But they're finding today's 18 to 25-year-olds are miserable. And here is what, what's making young people miserable. And I want you to remember as I tell you what Harvard says. What the study from Harvard says is making kids miserable. I want you to remember what we've been talking about in Exodus. Remember God freeing his people and then giving them directions for how to lead fruitful, blessing, beneficial lives on planet Earth. Where does joy come from? Joy comes from following the Lord. When we give ourselves to idols, they always disappoint. When we do things God's way, blessing and flourishing comes. Two big, or there's three reasons, but the two big reasons why young people are so miserable today. Number one, the, the breakdown of the family. Kids growing up without mom, without dad, no family, no stability. The world looks like a, uh, uh, they're, they're afraid, they're scared to death of this big bad world. They've never had the stability of family that God has ordained as the first institution. Good strong families create good strong nations. When there is no family, Society begins to break down. It has to. It doesn't have the stability and the support as we've been talking about for five, six weeks now. Harvard agrees. Don't you love it when science agrees with the Bible? Second reason, lack of participation in religious institutions. They don't go to church. They don't know the, the blessing, the benefit, the encouragement of God's people. That's why God says in Hebrews, don't forsake the coming together of yourselves. It's here that we, we uh, eliminate the lies that we've been hearing all week and we go to God's word. To what does God say that we can be encouraged and enjoy one another and enjoy our God together through the gospel of Jesus Christ? The breakdown of these things is creating miserable I told you two, three weeks ago, what we're doing right now in this world is unsustainable. 
Immorality always leads to the breakdown of all that is good. Following God's patterns for things leads to blessing and flourishing. We're seeing it before our eyes. Trust God. Trust his word. Follow his commands. Anything else you trust in will lead to disappointment. There's no other place for it to go. Exodus chapter 25, we're going to read the first nine verses, and then we're not going to read anything else, although this sermon will cover chapters 25, 26, 27, and 30. All those chapters talk about the tent of meeting, other, otherwise known as the tabernacle, and all of its furnishings. That's why we're lumping it all together. Now, some of you might say, well, what about chapters 28 and 29, Brent? Well, they don't say anything important, so we're not going to go over those. <laughs> Obviously, I'm kidding. Everything in the Bible is God-breathed. It's all important. Chapter 28 and chapter 29, we're going to go over next week. It talks about the priests, their priestly garments, the, the priestly breastplate, the ephod, uh, as it's called. We're going to talk about their role in all of that next week. This week is all about the Ten of Meetings. So chapter 25, we're going to read nine verses. And then we're going to move into some pictures. We're going to walk through all the furnishings of the temple together and hopefully see Jesus bigger and greater than we've ever seen him before. Let's pray. Father, lots happening, a lot being said. Dig us down in your gospel. May we see your gospel. May we know it more than we have ever known it before. Help us to see the beauty, the magnitude, the greatness of the salvation that you provide sinners like us. It is in the name of Jesus we pray. And everybody said... Amen. Chapter 25. The Lord said to Moses, now remember, through the Red Sea they've already come. Ten plagues in Egypt, deliverance, Red Sea parts. They walk across on dry ground. All the Egyptians uh, are drowned by the Red Sea coming down upon them at God's command. Uh, in the wilderness, it's trial, 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 trial. What is God doing? Hey, you're free now, but freedom comes at a cost. Freedom comes with responsibility, but God sustains them through those trials as he tries to work that slavery mentality out of them that they've had for 400 years, generation after generation in Egypt. They come to the Sinai Peninsula. God speaks audibly his command, but now it's time to move past Sinai. God has a promised land, an inheritance he wants to give his people so they can't stay where they're at. How many of you have been Christians for a while? You know God comes to you where you're at. He saves you where you're at, but he doesn't want you to stay where you're at. Amen? There is movement. If you ever find yourself in a comfortable place, just know uh, God loves to destroy comfortable places because it's in the discomfort that we grow, that our faith grows, that our trust in him begins to grow. So it's time for his people to move. They've seen the fire and the smoke on the mountain. They've heard God's audible voice giving his commands and directions. It's time to move into the promise that he gave long before them to Abram to Isaac and Jacob. And these are God's final instructions because God wants to go with them. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel that they take for me a contribution from every man, underline this, whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me. So God says, we're about to move. But before we do, there's something I need built. And in order for us to build it, everyone needs to contribute. But they should contribute as what's in their heart to give. God doesn't. Now, later on, we're going to see there are some, there's a census tax in chapter 30 uh, over every Israelite that's over 20 years old. There's temple taxes. There's uh, most scholars. Remember, Israel is a theocracy. It's not, a, it's not a nation like any other nation ruled by kings and queens in these early days. It's a theocracy. And, and the people paid their taxes somewhere between 23 and 30% of their uh, material wealth went to uh, the tent of meeting and later the temple uh, for the, uh, the worship of God and, the, and for the priesthood to survive. But here at the beginning, it, he wants his people to want to give to this 
project that he is enacting among them. Verse 3, and this is the contribution that you shall receive from them. He begins with gold, silver, and bronze. Notice iron. You're not going to find iron anywhere in the temple. And iron was a metal highly used uh, 3,500 years ago in this time period. But what was iron mostly used for? Weapons, shields, chariots. This, these things were unfit to build a tabernacle, a holy place for the Lord. So God said, the contributions I want are gold, silver, and bronze. And what we're going to see as we look at the tent of meeting, everything in the courtyard is made of bronze. When you move into the holy place in the tent of meeting, things are made of both gold and silver. And when you move into the holy of holies, as it's called, everything there is made of gold. This is why gold is mentioned first. The closer you get to God's presence, the more precious the metals used to create the furnishings that God wants in his tabernacle. Gold, silver, bronze. Then in verse 4, blue and purple and scarlet yarns. Right? Now look, God didn't say, bring me a Crayola box with all eight primary colors. Everything God does, as we'll see in a moment in verse 9, is intentional. These colors are intentional. Blue represents the heavens. Because God is the creator of all things. So blue represents him in his creative power, in his creative origin. Which, by the way, I don't know if you saw this this past week. I hope you're paying attention. You know, there was a man a uh, hundred years ago named James Webb who, math, math, he, we didn't have the optics, the telescopes to see into the, the furthest outreaches of our solar system. Couldn't see Neptune in his day and age. But he, from what he could see, he mathematically calculated a planet. And of course, he gave it the name Neptune. He celebrated as the founder of Neptune. Well, there's a brand new telescope they've created. It's called, it's named after him, and it just took pictures of the farthest we've ever seen into our solar system. Incredible, look it up, incredible pictures of Neptune just way out there. And do you know what they have discovered through these never-seen-before images? This is really important for all of you out there that follow the science. Okay. You guys did not laugh as much at 9, as 9.45 on that one, which makes me a little uncomfortable, but that's okay, right? Science always changes. Do you know what has become completely dismantled with the new information that we have received through the James Webb Telescope? Just a little something called the Big Bang Theory. <laughs> Is that not awesome? What, science doesn't want to believe in God, so what does science do? They come up with an alternative method. Even though scientifically it's proven something can't come from nothing, they've been hanging their hat on Big Bang Theory for since the early 1900s, the Scopes Monkey Trials, all this kind of stuff. This is their basis for creation and our existence, and it's been completely dismantled as science learns new information with new technology that we now have. Scientists are going nuts. They've come up with one or two different excuses why ah, it really doesn't dismantle. But, but honest, scholarly scientists are coming up and going, nope, 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 nope. And it's, it's a joy to watch. It just makes me so happy. Because we don't come from nothing. right? We come from someone and we're going somewhere. God created this thing. And as the world keeps fighting against him and his ways, God continues to prove himself over and over and over again. The Bible is true, and every man is a liar. Heavens represent, or blue represents the heavens from which God created all that we see, all that exists, including mankind and his image and likeness in the garden. Purple represents royalty. The economy of the ancient world is just like our economy today. It's supply and it is demand. The dyes to make, uh, to, to dye uh, linens or, or any kind of cloth or strings purple, it was hard to get. That made it very expensive in the ancient world, which is why the only people who owned purple were people of great wealth, kings and queens, which is why purple began to be known uh, as a royal color, began to symbolize royalty. And then, uh, finally, crimson. 
Why is, and we talked about this last week, why is the sacrificial system even a part of, of early Judaism? Why does God want his people to kill animals for uh, sin offerings? Because God wants his people to put together that sin leads to death. Scripture is clear. The wages of sin is death. Crimson is the color of blood. When we move into worship at the tent of meeting where God's presence dwells, God wants us to make the association. When we sin, something has to die, which is a foreshadowing to Christ, the, the spotless lamb, unblemished, who dies for our sin. These colors are prevalent in this tent of meeting. Moving on and fine twine linen. Goat's hair, tanned ram skins, goat skins. A ram is a male goat. Why all the goat skins? Why are they being used? Goats are primary in the, as the sin offering in the day of atonement. This tent of meaning will actually be covered in the sin offerings of the people. The furnishings he wants, acacia wood is next. The Egyptians, where they had just come, believed that acacia wood uh, represents and is symbolic of the immortality of the soul. But there's nothing in Jewish literature to suggest that they thought that. Uh, rather, most scholars say God said use acacia wood because it was uh, prevalent in the wilderness areas. It was one of those trees that would grow where no other trees could grow, and its wood was dense and sturdy. They couldn't get cedars of Lebanon in the Sinai Peninsula. But acacia trees were growing, so it was these trees they cut down and used for the wood frames of the furnishings and for the poles holding up the goat skins and, and, and the linen. Uh, moving on, verse 6. Oil for the lamp, spices for the anointing oil, and for the fragrant incense. There were two different concoctions of spices that God commanded his people to use within the worship of the tent of meeting. And no one could use them for anything else. They were, as in God's words, holy unto him and to be used only for their direct purpose. And not just anybody could make these things. Only a professional perfumer could put these uh, oils together. We'll talk about that more at the altar of incense. Look at verse 7. Onyx stones and stones for setting for the ephod and for the breastpiece. We'll talk more about the ephod and breastpiece next week as the priestly garments. But onyx is the last thing mentioned. Just in your Bibles, write Genesis chapter 2 and verse 12 down next to this verse. Because the contribution God's wants from his people begin with gold and ends with onyx. And these take us back to creation. What is God doing in the creation of this tent of meeting. He's giving his people a pattern for the way back home to his presence. What did God do in the Genesis accounts? Right, He walked with his creation, Adam and Eve, in the cool of the day. There was fellowship, God and humanity together. Now, as God's people are moving from the Mount Sinai into a promise land, God wants them to know that his original intention is still his intention today. He wants to be with them in relationship, fellowship with one another. The temple is a re return to Eden as well as a foreshadowing of how it all occurs in the person and work of Christ Jesus. God wants to be with us. Seven times God speaks in the creation story to Adam. Seven times in these chapters God speaks to Moses about the way the tent of meeting should uh, be developed and the furnishings should be constructed. Even the lampstand uh, looks like a tree representing the tree of life uh, that brings life to God's people, there are multiple uh, associations to be seen between creation and the tent of meeting, as well as the tent of meeting and the coming of Christ, as we'll see in a moment. Verse 8, and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. What does God want? A holy place. God can't just, his presence can't just dwell anywhere. Right, remember at the burning bush, take off your shoes. 
My presence is here. This is holy. God is holy. He's a consuming fire. He needs a holy place. He wants to be among his people. He needs a holy place that he may dwell among them. And listen and hear this. If you don't hear anything else, God wants to be present in your life. And we could not create a holy place where he could do that, which is why he sent Jesus. God came all the way to us doing what we could not, that he could be, his presence could be among us still today. Don't think that God is just some big thing out there. No, he's our ever-present help in times of trouble. God wants to walk with us in the cool of the day. He wants to, his people are fixing to travel. God wants to go with them, to be among them. Still today, he longs for his people. And it's not because some of you might be thinking, oh, God must be pretty lonely. Yeah, God must need some friends. God needs nothing. He has always existed in community with himself, Father, Son, and Spirit. They have been enjoying one another with no beginning and will enjoy one another until no end. But what does perfection do? Perfection shares itself. This is why God created. He wasn't lonely. He wasn't a a megomaniac needing someone to worship him. No, he shares his goodness. That's why we're created in his image and his likeness. He wants to be with us. He wants to share himself with his people for our good and for his glory. This is why the tent of meeting is constructed as they move towards the inheritance that God will provide. Verse 9, let's center here. And go ahead and put up the, well, I guess we should read it, then put up the tent of meeting slide. Exactly. Now that is an exact word. It means something specifically. You know what? I looked this word up in the Greek. It's funny. It means exactly. (laughs) Right? Follow my instructions to the T. Every T must be crossed. Every I must be dotted. Exactly as I show you. Underline that. I show you. Concerning the pattern of the tabernacle. Underline, just circle, underline the word pattern. I have it circled and highlighted because it's important. The pattern of the tabernacle and of its furniture. What we are fixing to study today in the next 25 minutes. God has patterned from eternity past to show the glory of a future he is bringing about. Which is why he says, exactly as I tell you, so you shall make it. So, underline, so you shall make. I show you and you make exactly. Because what I'm doing is important, not just for you in this time 3,500 years ago, but for my people until the return of Christ. Here's what I love about Scripture. Our scripture is so simple, a child can understand the gospel. It's not hard to understand John 3, 16, right? For God so loved the world, he gave his only son. Whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life, right? A four-year-old can recite, God loved, so he gave, we believe, we have. That's the gospel in miniature, John 3, 16, according to Martin Luther, the great reformer. The gospel is simple, but it is also profound. The Puritans had a saying that the gospel was like the most beautiful, rare, largest diamond that has ever been found in the world. You hold the, the diamond up and instantly you are mesmerized by its beauty, by its clarity, uh, 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 by the, 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 the carrot size. But you don't stay mesmerized just at the first glance. You begin to turn. And as you turn the diamond ever so slightly, the light catches and the prisms of light and color begin to expand. And the more you turn, the more beautiful, the more beautiful, the more beautiful it becomes. 
This is what happens when Christians, why do we always say, read your Bible, read your Bible, read your Bible. I'm having a hard time. Are you reading your Bible? Well, no. Well, read your Bible, read your Bible, read your Bible. Why? Because the gospel grows as we grow. Of course, it's easy to understand when we're young. We trust in Jesus. He saves us from our sin. But there are patterns. There are caverns so deep in Scripture. I have been studying the Bible for 25 years. I've been in ministry for 25 years. And I just now feel like I'm getting to a point where I could almost start to be qualified to talk about the rich depth the treasure that is his word and his gospel because uh, I mean every time I open this book and let me tell you something my wife don't think too much of yourself my wife when she goes into Publix and says could you just drop me off real quick real quick I'll only be five minutes here's what I know that's going to be 35 minutes <laughs> my kids can vouch <laughs> there is no short quick trips into Publix so I got this little app on my phone. It's called the Bible, Daily Bible Trivia. And guess what? When I play this game sitting in my car waiting on my wife, I am deified. <laughs> I get all the questions right. And it makes me a little, puts a little cock in my step, you know? My chest comes out a little much. Now, let me give you some background before you think me too arrogant. Uh, the questions are like, what is the name of the first man God created? <laughs> right? Just because you know some stuff about this book, don't get cocky. You will never, you will never exhaust the glory, the depth I mean, you can, there are threads, scarlet threads of the gospel of salvation from Genesis all the way through Revelation that you will spend a lifetime unpacking. And as you unpack it, the gospel becomes, I mean, why would someone lay their life down and not recant their faith in Christ? That's someone who's seen the beauty that's more than skin deep. That's someone who has, has mined the riches of this God, who has recognized and seen the patterns. And once you see the patterns, you can't unsee them. And you begin to see them everywhere, in every story, on every page. This is what God wants, not for us just to know the gospel, but to see the depth and the pattern. 3,500 years ago, he built into his people so that we could more perfectly enjoy his grace in Christ Jesus, our Lord and our Savior. And it's that pattern I hope to unpack for you a little bit today. Look at this picture of the rest of chapter 25, 26, 27, and chapter 30. Unveil to us the pattern of this tabernacle. It's got an outside wall with a large space in the front. They call that space the courtyard. Now this mobile tent at this time in history, once God's people get into the promised land, once the kingship of David is established, his son Solomon builds a permanent structure, the temple. It's destroyed by the Babylonians, but it's rebuilt by Zerubbabel, and it's perfected. We call it actually the third temple. It was there. It was Zerubbabel's temple in the days, of, days leading up to Christ, that intertestamental period. But it was actually Herod the Great that made all kinds of renovations and additions. It didn't have one courtyard in the days of Jesus. It had, mold, it had a courtyard for the priests, courtyard for men, courtyard for women, even a courtyard for Gentiles that wanted to come to hear about the Hebrew God. But in the, in the mobile days when everything had a poles and, and the Levites were split into groups, they all had job assignments of what they carried uh, from the tent of meeting as they traveled from place to place to get to the promised land. There was one courtyard, and it was in the front. There was only one entrance. Notice one entrance. There's not side entrances. There's not a back door that even the priests get to sleep in. Sleep in. Slip in. There we go. If you ever show up uh, to the 8 a.m. service and you get there about 7.59 like I do, you'll see me sliding in the side door over here. There's no side door. There's one way. How many of you know who Larry Norman is? 
Jesus is calling. You better get that. Anybody remember Larry Norman and the One Way song? God provides one point of access to get to his presence. And the only way you can get to his presence is his way. So many people who hate Christianity and hate the gospel, they say, why would God only save through Jesus, his son? Why can't there be lots of different ways that people can can find a, a path to God? Because that would be cruel and you would never know if your path was good or not. God is just and he's good. So he provides one clear way to get to him. And there's no other way to do it. God is clear. One entrance. Now look, and we're going to walk through these quickly, and then we're going to take them one at a time. The first thing you come to is a bronze altar. The next thing you come to is a, go back to the big screen, or the big picture. The next thing you come to is a bronze basin. Everything in the courtyard is made of bronze, the least precious of those metals, gold, silver, and bronze. Then you have a curtain leading into a tent. This first part, the larger part of this tent, the first room that you walk into, is called the holy place. To the left, if you can see it, you have a candlestick. To the right, you have the table of showbread, as it's called later. It's called the table here in Exodus. As you move towards a second curtain, we know as the veil, you see the altar of incense positioned right there in the middle, right before the veil. That veil separates the holy place from the most holy place where the Ark of the Covenant, for all you Indiana Jones fans, this is the thing that if you open it up, it melts your face off. (laughs) Right? Okay, so this is, this is the pattern He's building into his people this pattern, this flow of worship of how people can come from outside the courtyard and get all the way to his very presence, which is what God's desire for us is. So let's start as we enter the courtyard. The first thing that we encounter is the bronze altar. And look at it. Notice the corners. It's got four corners, four horns as they're called. And these are not just additions added on. Uh, God says specifically, the horn should be made of one piece and overlaid with bronze as one piece. The horns in the ancient world symbolize salvation and refuge. We know this. There are some great stories about the horns of the altar in the Old Testament as people knowing they can't save themselves go and grab onto these horns because it's salvation and refuge that comes from God, not from themselves or not from any other man. One of my favorite stories is in 1 Kings chapter 1, a, a man named Adonijah, who is a brother of Solomon. David's dying on his deathbed. Solomon's going to be the next king, but Adonijah gets this great idea. Power play, right? I'm going to steal the crown for myself. So he gets a bunch of officials, and he brings them together, and he makes himself king before David breathes his last breath. Here's the problem. David finds out about it before he dies. <laughs> And he says, Solomon is going to be king. And he crowns Solomon uh, with uh, the prophet of God in in his presence. And Adonijah hears about it and knows it's going to cost him his life for his treason and for his treachery. So what does he do in chapter 1 of 1 Kings? He goes and he grabs onto the horns. Why? When you can't save yourself. When you need a bigger salvation than you can provide yourself. Where do you go? You go to the altar. You grab a, it's the first thing that happens when you come into the tent of meeting. When you enter the courtyard, there's an altar with horns representing salvation. Where do we go for salvation? We come to God. We're coming towards his presence. First thing we come to is the altar. What happens at an altar? Something dies. There's a sacrifice necessary to move past the altar into the holy place, into the holy of holies where God's presence lies. Can't get there. Got to go through the steps. Something's got to die. And this something can't just be anything. Well, Brent, I mean, I've sinned, so I'll just accept my punishment and, and I'll save myself through my own death, the shedding of my own blood. The unrighteous can't save the unrighteous. When we die ourselves, we get exactly what we deserve, death and separation from the grace of God. Only the righteous can die for the unrighteous, which is why the sin offerings 
killed on the bronze altar had to be unblemished without spot. They had to be perfect because only the unrighteous can die for the righteous. Only their spilled blood can pay the debt that is owed for the one who sins. And just so everyone in here knows, I know some of you might be thinking, Brent, this is a really good message for sinners. But not for me because I'm perfect. I've never done anything wrong. I've never failed to do anything right. I've got news for you. The Bible says you're a liar. 1 John, anyone who claims to be without sin is a liar. All we like sheep have gone astray. Every one of us have turned our own way. We've turned from God to do our own thing is what that means. We've become our own gods. We're not going to worship you. We're not going to do what you say. We think we're smarter. We think we're different than everybody else that's ever lived in history. We think we're going to get it right and we become our own gods. Doesn't sound like our culture at all, does it? Right? Scripture is clear. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All of us need a substitute to pay the penalty that we owe. The theological term for this is, James David, stand up. You better remember this. Don't embarrass me. Stand up. What is the theological term for this? That's my boy! I just got a dad card. Penal. There's a penalty. Wages and his death. There's a penalty. Substitutionary. Something perfect. Something righteous. Something holy. Dies in the place of the unrighteous. The unholy. The blemished with spot. To atone. To cover our sins. The first thing that happens in the tent of meeting is... A substitutionary atonement must occur. Holy blood must be shed for the unholy. And that moves us to the basin, the bronze basin. Because this blood was caught in, in uh, bowls and the priest would take it into the tent of meeting. But before the priest could even go, and again, we'll talk about the priesthood next week and how Jesus is the better high priest. Just so you know from Hebrews, Jesus is the better tabernacle. He's the better priest and he's the better sacrifice. Goats and bulls, he had to do over and over and over and over again. But Jesus, one and done, baby. He's that holy. He's that righteous. His blood covers multitude of sins. But anyway, the priest had to go to the basin before they took the blood into the holy place. And they had to wash their hands and their feet. Exodus says, if they didn't do this before they walked into the holy place, they would die. The blood of the substitute cleanses. What is the basin? What does it symbolize? What does it mean? Made of solid bronze, basin bowl, holding about nine gallons of water, estimates at the time of the tent of meeting say it shows how we were filthy and dirty and said our sins were red as scarlet, but the sacrifice of our perfect substitute washes us white as snow. How can we stand? How can we move closer to a consuming God? that consumes all unrighteousness in his wrath. How can we not be destroyed as we move closer? The expiation of the cross of Christ. He takes our sins far away from us, and he washes us clean. That's why we still practice baptism today. Baptism is a, a, a current New Testament symbol of how we die to sin. But we're raised anew in Christ, washed clean and into new life, able to continue to move towards the presence of God. This is what Christ does for us. He washes us. He atones to cover our sin. Moving into the Holy of Holies. On the left, the first thing we encounter is the candlestick. Look at the candlestick. Some of you will notice this is the Jewish menorah. One candlestick with three branches, Exodus says, on one side. Three branches on the other with its collapses and its cups made to look like uh, the almond blossoms. Let me ask you a question. Why does there need to be a Why is a candlestick part of the furnishings of this tent anyway? See if you can go back to the tent slide really quick. And this isn't really a good picture because it's all opened up. But there are no windows in this thing. It's covered by two layers of goat hair. It's completely dark 
inside the tent of meeting. So God says, make a candle stand out of a talent of gold. The candle stand weighs 75 pounds. And by the way, just if some of you are, are saying, I've seen candlesticks, Jewish candlesticks before, and they've got eight candelabra uh, things coming out. Uh, that one only has seven from Exodus. What's the difference? The difference is the Maccabean revolt when they beat the Seleucids during the intertestamental period where Hanukkah comes from, that festival of lights, they added an extra candle to the candelabra. As Adam Sandler says, it was those eight crazy nights that changed what God said. But the original, just three branches on each side of the middle, to give light in the darkness. Who is Christ? He is, what is his word? It is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Without Christ, without his word, we're going to stumble. That's why scripture says it's all God breathed, every bit of it. Because we're going to get it wrong. It's to rebuke us, to train us, to build us up. We're going to get things wrong in the darkness of this world. But Christ came and is the light. Look at John chapter 8. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Do you want to not stumble? Do you want to not be deceived? Are you tired of the things that you're hearing on social media and in the news and even from professors at Lee guys? Got to be careful with those guys. How can, we, how can we stay on the straight and narrow? Jesus is the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. How do we not get it wrong? We stay on the heels of Jesus like any good disciple. We cover ourselves in the dust of his feet. Where he leads, we go. What he says to believe, we believe. What he says to declare, we declare. As he is not only uh, uh, Christus Victor, our victor, he's also Christus Exemplar. What did Jesus do on planet Earth? Multiple times in the Gospels, I only go where the Father leads. I only say what the Father tells me to say. I only do what the Father tells me to do. And we follow Jesus as he perfectly and righteously satisfies all the requirements that God demands of humanity. Jesus is our light leading the way forward in the darkness. To our right in the tent of meeting, we have the table table of bread, the table of showbread, as it's later called. A table made of acacia wood covered in gold. It's got two stacks of bread, unleavened, uh, reminiscent of without sin and the haste that God's people had to leave Egypt. Two stacks of six pieces of bread, 12 total, representing each tribe of Israel. All 12 tribes represented on the table. This bread is the sustenance. How many of you know it gets hard to follow Jesus? How many of you know sometimes you don't know if you're going to make it to the end? It is the table of showbread that symbolizes and represents the sustenance and the strength that only Jesus can give us to move closer to the altar, to the smoke, to move closer to the, the veil, to move closer to the presence of God. It is Jesus and his son. He said in John 6, I am the bread of life. Eat of me. He who shall eat of me shall not hunger. Who believes in me shall never thirst. If you're tired, if you're weary this morning, look to Christ who is your strength, who will get you to the finish line where you can cross and receive the crown that God has ordained for you. Jesus lights the way, and he is our strength and our sustenance. It's why we pray every day, according to Matthew chapter 6, give us this day our daily Bread, our sustenance, our strength comes from Christ himself who has already overcome the world. Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, for I have overcome the world. It is his strength that takes us all the way. What is the next furnishing in the tent of meeting? It is this altar of incense, this perfectly square pillar the top of it matching the bronze altar from the courtyard with its four horns, again representing salvation and refuge. 
It was on this one of those special blends of spices, and only this one special blend of spices could be burned. Now, later on in the New Testament and in Revelation, uh, this, this smoke coming from the altar represents the, the prayers of the people. But here, there's no prayer mentioned specifically in this text. And here I want you to see another reality, another uh, uh, deeper part of this pattern that God has put together. Where is the altar of incense placed? Right in front of the veil, right before you can step through into the presence of God. Twice a day the priest would go in and they would, they would put the oil on fire and the smoke would come. This is representative of Sinai itself. When God's people came to the mountain and smoke was billowing from the mountain, they knew that behind that smoke, God's presence audibly spoke to them. God was behind the smoke. You can go online and see, I couldn't find a high-res picture big enough, but when, when that incense was burning on the outside of the day, if you were anywhere in the camp, you could see the, the pile of smoke, and you know exactly in the camp where the tent of meeting was, where God's presence was. It is the altar of incense that represents your close. And right behind that altar of incense was this veil. This veil beautifully woven from the, the blue, the purple, and the scarlet fine linen. Four cherubim, a masterful work. At the time of the temple in the days of Jesus, when, well, in the days right after Jesus, within a generation, Rome came in and destroyed the temple. The veil of the temple at that time would have been four inches thick, four fingers thick. It took 150 priests to take it down when they cleaned it one time a year. This veil was the last thing that blocked God's people from his presence. Only the high priest one time a year was allowed to enter into the holy of holies. The veil stood guard, the just like in the garden, the cherubim standing guard. So Adam and Eve could no longer enter the garden after they sinned and were cast out. Now cherubim in this veil block everyone but the high priest once a year from the very presence of God. How do we get through the veil? Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Look at Matthew chapter 27 as we hurry to the ark. At the, when Jesus breathed his last, when he yielded his spirit as he died in our place for our sins on the cross... At that moment, darkness covered the land, and that veil, four inches thick, ripped in two like paper at the death of Christ. Access to the Father has been given to all who will believe and put their faith in Christ, his substitutionary blood, his perfect life, his death in our place for our sin, rends the veil in two, providing access we have never had before, straight to the Father who wants to be in relationship and dwell among his people. It is Christ who gives us that access, that audience with Yahweh himself. And then finally, once in the Holy of Holies, the veil rent, there we find the ark, an acacia wood box, laid with gold both inside and out, hollowed in the middle. Do you know what was placed in the middle? Verse 16 of chapter 25 tells us. It is the testimony of God that is placed in the ark. The Ten Commandments themselves placed within the ark. And the ark has a cover. The word for cover in Hebrew is where we get the English word atonement. This cover is placed over the ark, sealing the, the Ten Commandments, the law of God inside. And on this cover, the middle of the cover, is called the mercy seat. Grace is when God gives us what we don't deserve. Mercy is when we don't get what we do deserve. 
All sinners deserve death and hell. But mercy doesn't give us what we do deserve. Instead, we get grace. So this mercy seat that covers the law with two cherubim, two angelic beings with wings cover over the mercy seat. And once a year, on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, They would take the blood of the sin offering and the high priest would go into the holy of holies as only he could. And he would sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat. Again, what is the mercy seat? What is the blood on top of the mercy seat? What is the atonement? What is being covered? The very law of God that we have broken. But through the sacrifice of Christ Our debt to the law is paid in full. Meaning that where we couldn't stand in the presence of God, in the holy of holies, in that holiest place where his presence dwelt, none could stand. But now through the blood of Christ our Lord, covering our sin, covering the law that we have broken, Eden and relationship restored again. The bounty of all God's blessing available to those of us in Christ Jesus. This is the gospel. This is the only gospel. This is the only way to salvation and refuge. You cannot save yourself. See the pattern. See the person and work of Christ doing what we have not Dying in our place for our sin. Rising, conquering sin, death, hell, and the grave. That we could walk with God our Father in the cool of the day again. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for your gospel. God, sink it deeply into our hearts that we may not be deceived by the false prophets and the false gospels that they proclaim. There is one way through your blood, Christ, that brings us back into relationship with holy Yahweh, our God. It is in Jesus' name, solidify and cement these things on our hearts. Lord Jesus, may our faith be strong. It is in your name we pray. And every Christian said, amen.